Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kaya Isaacson. This week, Hugh Drummond fills in for Cosmo on 321 Go, and then I catch up with Tom O'Neill for Two Minutes with Tom. First up, 321 Go. Hi, it's uh, Hugh Drummond, and I'm filling in for Cosmo this week on 321 Go. With me is my dear friend, Cayenne. Hello. Hi, Cayenne. How are you today? Good. How are you? Doing okay. You know, another week. Another week down. Another week down. Right. One so, week to election day, one, more, one week closer to 2020 being over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just everything about 2020. It's uh, it has I, not been the best year to date. Not at all, not at all. So, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, unfortunately, we've got to talk some COVID numbers because mm-hmm. the numbers all over the country are are trending up, which is mm-hmm. which is not good for anyone that's not clear. Um, up is bad, down is good, um, and, and as we're going into winter i think everyone's probably expecting to see those numbers continue to trend up particularly in places where people can't be outside um you know we've still got a lot of rough days and weeks ahead of us yeah absolutely i think you know the the week began for me on sunday i was watching meet the press and uh chuck todd had on michael osterholm who is a epidemiologist from the university of minnesota and the forecast that uh, the doctor put out was was striking. I mean, we're we're currently at roughly uh, seventy thousand new cases a day, and he said that the next six to twelve weeks would be the darkest weeks of this pandemic. And to think that we're already at you know say fifty to seventy thousand new cases a day. And the darkest days are yet to come was just a, a real um, horrible way to, to start a Sunday morning. Um, but unfortunately, like you said, I mean, we're, we're entering that time of year where people um, stay inside. We're uh, approaching uh, uh, holidays where people traditionally have gathered. And um, those are dangerous times for for people dangerous decisions really and and we really have to continue to be very smart about going about our lives yeah i mean i think to your point with the holidays coming up we had that same issue over the summer right we had memorial day we had july 4th we had labor day one of the nice things about those holidays and the and the season is that at least the majority of those events were taking place outside, which I'm sure was incredibly helpful in a lot of situations. You look to Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, coming up very quickly. My son told me today, 65 days until Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and if those those sorts of events, whether the weather is nice or not, traditionally happen inside around a Christmas tree, around a you know dining room table. Um, and we still do not have, you know, adequate testing in a lot of places. We've got people that still don't, you know, aren't wearing masks and social distancing. The list is long. And, you know, we've seen other countries doing better, but a lot of other countries that were even doing better are starting to trend, 
you know, case numbers up to, which is a, a cautionary tale. But to be this far along, I mean, remember in March when offices shut down for a couple of weeks and we all were like, all right, see you in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Who yeah. would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's almost like, uh, it, it's funny. I was talking with uh, a client this morning and um, the idea of uh, things that happened pre-pandemic uh, are almost irrelevant now because the world has, has changed so much uh, since, since March, since, well, late February, uh, March. Um, you know, on this, uh, on this topic, though, there is some glimmer of hope um, in that the Southern Hemisphere has had a very light seasonal flu season. Um, so obviously their winter is our summer. And uh, for instance, Australia uh, had uh, only 315 cases of the flu this winter, um, down from 130,000 cases that it usually sees in, in a normal year. So that's kind of an interesting uh, fact. Um, now, of course, the Australians tend to be more um, compliant with, with public health measures um, than, than Americans are, and they've, they've had a very strict lockdown in place uh, due to coronavirus. But still, the fact that the seasonal flu has not had a, um, uh, a significant punch uh, could be um, a, a sign of optimism uh, for, for us up here. It doesn't mean you know, still get your flu shot and and still take every precaution. But uh, I do find that a little bit hopeful. So we still have to buckle up, everybody, and uh, keep wearing those masks, keep social distancing. I think we should probably all expect to continue doing the majority of our work from home for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can at least keep our kids in school, even if it's part time. I know that that's a, a saving grace for a lot of parents. But again, if we saw Boston Public Schools made the announcement this week that they're going to be going full remote uh, because case numbers are rising. And unfortunately, that's probably not the last time we're going to see that announcement come from a municipality. Yeah, for me, schools are an entirely different topic that we should delve into a different day. <laughs> it's uh, it's something, but you're right. I think yeah, you know, we're in it for the long haul. Um, I, in recent uh, weeks, I I made the investment of getting a headset, um, and uh, I think that was a smart move. So, <laughs> onward. Onward and upward. Right. All right. So let's move on from the novel coronavirus to something a lot more light. Um, Donald Trump, the dancer. Who knew? <laughs> I, I hope everyone has seen these videos. Uh, it's, well, it's, I think it's really one video of him making these moves, but people across the internet have, have added all kinds of music to it. Yes, we've uh, seen some Baby Shark adaptations, Thomas the Tank. Um, That's the best, in my opinion. (laughs) And it is, if you haven't seen it, please go Google and just watch Donald Trump dancing, because no matter what you think of him, good, bad, or indifferent, it's funny. And a little levity is always welcome in a day, in my opinion. Um, But what's interesting to me about this, to get more, you know, back on, on track, is if you were to think about in years prior, some like, 
public gaffes and things that have harmed candidates. Mm-hmm. And yet Trump dancing on a stage doesn't even crack the top 10 of, right. you know, of things he has said or done. Um, you know, in what was it, 1988, he had Dukakis in the tank. That, I mean, people literally were like his, his candidacy ended that day. Mm-hmm. Um, Howard Dean and the screaming in mm-hmm. 2004, um, Kerry and the windsurfing in 2000, just all, you know, these images that really defied the, I guess, perceived decorum of what people thought, you know, a presidential candidate should be or should look like. We had candidates that were sidelined by things so simple. Um, And then you've got this president who's currently in campaign mode, um, who, like I said, the list is incredibly long, now dancing on a stage. And it's like, nah, we'll make a meme out of it, but we'll all be talking about something else by tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Or within hours, <laughs> you know, it doesn't even have to survive the day. You know, the thing that, uh, that I, I think is funny is the, the most famous bad dance in, in recent memory or modern, modern history would be probably the Seinfeld episode where, um, Elaine does, does that dance. And it, it's funny because, um, Jason Alexander, um, who played, uh, George on, on the show, tweeted um about the president's dance that that uh, uh elaine was you know number one she's an actress and she was working hard to be that bad in, mm-hmm. in doing that dance and jason tweets you know i feel like these were trump's best moves <laughs> so Probably. just kind of uh the whole thing is funny i i do think that um the other part is that Anything people do nowadays, the internet is full of, of, of individuals that will quickly seize upon it. And, um, you know, the adding of the uh, different music, um, the um, uh, taking other footage of, you know, of the president and, and putting music to him, doing other things. I mean, it's just uh, uh, the internet is, is the Wild West. And... It is. And today for these videos, I say, internet, we applaud you. <laughs> it, it was, uh, it did make for a lot of fun. Uh, I know the late night shows had fun with it as well. Yeah. So, you know, if you need, a, if you need a little giggle and again, no matter what you think of them, it's funny, go laugh. Yeah. Okay. So now we have some really, really beautiful, hopeful news coming out of the Vatican, uh, with Pope Francis, uh, declaring support for same-sex civil unions for the first time. Which is a very big deal <laughs> for, um, for Catholicism, uh, for the Pope to be, you know, that forward thinking. I, I, I will say, obviously, a civil union is not marriage, so we are not all the way where, um, you know, I think we, we hope to be on the issue but it is an incredibly large step forward for the Pope and for Catholicism. Right. Definitely. So just to the, the, um, the statement came as it's part of a documentary, um, a a filmmaker, um, put together a documentary. Um, and, um, it was in this documentary where, where Pope Francis, uh, uh, makes the statement, um, 
it's it's interesting elsewhere in the documentary and i haven't seen it yet but i've i've seen this the news reports um he also speaks out about um the separation policy uh of of the trump administration on the u.s mexico border saying that it's cruelty and separating kids from parents goes against natural rights it is something that christians cannot do so there's there's clearly more in this documentary than 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 just the statement about um, same-sex civil unions, but makes me really proud to uh, be a Catholic and and uh, see this Pope continue to um, move the church forward. Yeah, so in the Globe story about it uh, today, quotes uh, James Martin saying, the Pope speaking positively about civil unions also sends a strong message to places where the church has opposed such laws. Uh, we currently have a Sup Supreme Court nominee um, who it, her appointment could potentially threaten um, that here in the United States. So I think the timing as it pertains to the politics in our country right now and what we're grappling with it, I mean, on so many ways, but particularly with the Supreme Court nominee and what it could potentially mean um, is even more interesting as we think about how does that play into the potential thought processes of the more conservative Supreme Court justices. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it, it'll be interesting to see how this is uh, received in, um, in Catholic communities in, in the United States. Um, I think especially among the uh, Catholics, uh, we, we have an election that's, you know, two weeks away, and um, it'll be interesting to see if this uh, has an impact on, on the Catholic vote uh, on that front as well. But, you know, I, I keep coming back to, and I don't know, may, maybe it's just being pretty simple, but I, you know, I was always taught that, you know, God loves you. And you're you're supposed to love each other, and you know you, you you respect each other, you respect human beings, whoever they are, and it was never really a hard kind of concept. And I was uh, I'm always troubled when um, the interpretation of that takes different turns and and you know gets gets in a in a way uh, muddied up, because to me it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I remember learning um, in CCD and Catholic, my Catholic education as a child, when I found out that the word Catholic with a little C means universal. Um, and I remember having the question, if, if the word Catholic means universal, then why does the Catholic Church seem so exclusionary of so many people? Um, and my teacher, I don't think had a very good answer, <laughs> because yeah. I don't think there's a great answer to that question. So um, yeah, to your point, this on on the face of it, this this seems like a no brainer. Um, unfortunately, it's not. But moving, we are moving forward, and that's yeah. good. And these time, you know, in these days, uh, we need uh, we need our churches. We we need our faith. And um, so again, uh, a proud day for the Catholic Church uh, with Pope Francis. Thank you. Hey, it's been great to fill in for Cosmo, but uh, this, oh, is, uh, <laughs> this is, this uh, is, I don't mind being uh, the fill in, um, doing this every week is I applaud you guys for, for the hard work it takes to put this together every week. Thank you.
Well, the hard work applause goes to Catherine O'Brien. So thank you, Catherine. Yep, thanks, Catherine. Have a good one. Hi, it's Hugh Drummond, and I have the uh, pleasure of speaking with Reagan Paris, who is the Director of Music, Education, and Choral Activities at Anna Maria College, located in Paxton, Mass. How are you doing, Reagan? I'm wonderful. How are you? Great. So, um, horror movies and music. What would a horror movie be without music? Well, I before I begin, I, I think it's important to say... I absolutely love the Halloween season. I mean, it really does start the whole holiday season. And uh, it's there's as a father of three kids, uh, it's just engaging in all of these activities like trick-or-treating and uh, pumpkin carving. All of those are really sentimental to all of us. So it, it's it's always exciting when, uh, when Halloween comes around. And uh, again, this year is no different. I, I love going to horror films. Uh, I love going to the, the theaters to, to see the reaction of the people. I, I feel like it's almost... Fear is is almost done with through osmosis. When the people around you are scared and nervous, you, you can feel that tense tenseness, and and so much of it is tied into the musical score. So it's it's been well documented for thousands of years how music can help alter the psyche of a person. Some films that I absolutely love the score to is The Shining. I in The Shining, there it's one of the the best composed uh, scores of all time, and uh, for a lot of reasons. So recall uh, an interval in music. Uh, we, it's just like the distance between two notes. Um, but there's one uh, particular uh, distance, one particular interval called the tritone, and it was avoided. It was avoided by the church for thousands of years because they felt like it would elicit evil spirit. So it was so bad that they actually called it the devil's interval. Um, and it was just avoided at all costs. And uh, here we are, uh, when the movie Shining came out, we were embracing it. We were, we were using the tritone to, to, to scare people off. And, and there's a, a sense of instability when you have the tritone and you have dissonant chords. And it's almost, uh, it, it almost sneaks up on you as a as a someone who's engaging and watching a, a horror film it, it really does sneak up on you you have you begin to get a little bit nervous and if you look listen closely and you watch how the directors uh, and the the music directors of the film kind of artfully put the visual and aural component together it just it works beautifully in some films and the shining is really uh, i think it's a standout um there are other movies that i think uh are spectacular in terms of the marriage between the music and the film itself uh, I, I do think people know jaws for instance i mean um what i like about jaws too is it's not like necessarily a halloween film but it elicits so much fear and uh, if it can go awry if you have a lesser composer that just does a poor job in really helping set the tone, then you really could have lost a, a moment, uh, an impactful moment uh, for fear. Um, but it's it, it it does it's more innovative approach to 
creating discomfort uh, in the audience. And that uses, he uses, that composer's name again is uh, Christoph uh, Penderecki, mm -hmm. is it? Yeah, that's and, right. And he uses untraditional instruments too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, and the way he plays it, even the traditional instruments are so unique. Mozart, <laughs> Beethoven, Vivaldi, none of them would have used the string instruments the way Pendrecki had uh, written it, uh, written the score. It's interesting, you know, when when uh, people are scared in the movies, often they close their eyes. Um, another strategy is just close your, block your ears, because if you if if that music is uh, absent, that scene may not have the same effect. You know, I'm, I, it's interesting that you say that. I know a lot of people, and actually, I have three young kids. I have a five year old, a three year old, and an eight month old. And um, it's if you want if you watch kids, and when kids watch The Wizard of Oz for the first time, and the witch's theme is playing. They are petrified of the theme. Like, they, they think of that song. And I, I've done this show now. I, I've actually directed this show twice now. And, of course, it's a big show. People recognize the show, and I have a ton of kids in the audience. But it's remarkable. Whenever the witch's theme song comes along, and it's, again, filled with all different arpeggios, it's amazing. Those kids are really, truly frightened. And it's not necessarily the presence of the witch, but it's the kind of the imprint of the music and the, the affect that it has on the whole atmosphere. And so even though we're not there, the witch is not on stage at the moment or in the film, even though the witch is not seen at the, uh, on screen, that, song that's being played really does strike a great deal of fear into, into children. Well, Reagan, I really appreciate you joining us, uh, taking uh, a break from uh, teaching uh, music students uh, today to uh, talk about Halloween music and um, some of the features that, that go into composing. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate it. And then have a happy Halloween. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi, Kyan. Hi, Tom. How are you? Two Minutes with Cayenne. Here we are again. Two Minutes with Tom. Back at it. Back at it. Week 147 or something. <laughs> Time flies. We're having fun, Tom. We are. And, you know, we get we get new listeners every week. It's incredible because I get new reactions every week. And so I guess it's working. Anyway, tonight is the debate. It is. We're going to do I a little, think, little forecasting. Well, I think, I, I think um, probably... Everybody has made up their mind. Um, and there are a few states out there where there's a third party candidate, either an environmental party, a green party, or, you know, it could be a far right of center party that's, that's on uh, a ballot, which will set one or perhaps a little bit more of the vote away, which could make a difference in a swing state like Wisconsin or, or I guess, Michigan. Um, so... I, I don't want to. I don't want the Biden people to take anything for granted. That's for darn sure. We did. We did that four years ago. Mm -hmm. We chose not to campaign in some of those swing states, just taking them for granted. There cannot be any more of that. I've said this before. One of the great polls you can take is the money poll, and the money is coming in not only for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. It's always come. It's already coming in for 
uh, Democratic Senate candidates and congressional candidates in droves more than the Republicans are raising money. Which, which is important. It's a, a very important yeah. thing, very important thing. The second thing we talked about in, in weeks past is that unlike Hillary Clinton, uh, Biden may, may not be as good a candidate, but he's a far more liked candidate than Hillary was. And his negative is sufficiently lower. So that, so that I, I think people have not been given a reason really by the Biden team not to vote for Biden. Um, number one, some of this hinges on tonight's debate. Although again, I think most people have made up their mind. As I as I've said earlier too, the Biden the Biden this campaign for president is Biden's to lose, um, be, because he's up on all the polls and the likability factor is strong and the and the donations coming through the door are very strong. Um, and and to be perfectly honest with you, I, I when I meet somebody who's going to vote for Donald Trump, they always kind of tell me that they, they understand how bad he is, they're gonna hold his nose, but Donald, Donald Trump put money in their back pocket. Um, I just cannot believe there are that many people in this country that will hold their nose to vote for Donald Trump, knowing what kind of a president he's been. I just can't believe it. Yeah, and to your point, you know, it's, there are, uh, certainly I was having this discussion last night with some friends, there are, there are people, particularly those making now above $400,000 a year, who are saying, I, I can't vote for Biden. Um, I'm worried about what it's going to do to me. And it's sort of like, you know, we need people to step back and say, you've got to make a decision for the greater good um, about the future of our country, what kind of country we're raising our kids in, and, and the morals and the, the character of um, our government and democracy. Uh, it's, it's startling to hear that, um, and, and a little disappointing still, but when we talk about tonight, we have we have a can we have a debate between a former vice president and a current president that because of the initial performance, the mics have to be muted. To which I say, thank goodness, and it's a good call. But how sad! Okay. I mean, how sad that we can't trust one of the people on the debate stage to behave in a manner in which is respectable and enough that we don't have to mute microphones. That's, that's, that's quite a comment you just made. It's <laughs> quite a comment you just made. Unbelievable. And I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. Anyway. And it won't stop. I think what's important for people to think about too, we, we heard after the last debate, I think it was Chris Christie, I could be wrong, that said you know something to the effect of, um, part of Trump's plan to was in constantly interrupting was to kind of bring out Joe Biden's stutter, um, which is pretty shameless in and of itself. But just because his mic won't be on does not mean he will not potentially try to continue to interrupt Joe Biden if he thinks that that's effective. I don't know how he can think it's effective when everybody walked away from the last debate saying it really worked against him. Now, I know he sees the world order in a very different way, <laughs> the natural order in a very different way, uh, and, the human, and, the, and the human aspect in a very different way than most people do. Yeah. But, oh my good God, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's so, he's so opposite anything I stand for, believe in, think about, I can put myself to do 
And I, I just, I, I just don't get it. I just do not get it. I don't know how many people can hold their nose, you know, and just, and just go into their polling booth and cast a ballot for them. Well, anyway. last, last debate is this evening. Um, we'll have to take it apart when we talk again next week. And look, for, look forward to it. And, and as I, as I always say, between the pandemic and this election, we will see a brighter day. That I guarantee you. Thanks, Tom. See ya. Nice to talk. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.